This is Liminal Leaders, a podcast exploring the changing nature of leadership in business transformation. We are your hosts, Martin Dowson and Brian Hoadley. And not only are we producing this podcast, but we're also writing a book on liminal leadership. Each episode follows one of two formats. It's either a drop-in session where Martin and I discuss various themes in our book, reflecting on how the topics have manifested in our own practice and where we might take our writing next. Or Brian and I have a discussion with a guest expert or contributor who we want to interview as part of our research. Either way, these are pretty much the raw recordings of our conversations, with minimal editing allowing you to listen in on our working and thinking process. We need to enable people within those businesses, not just sustainability teams, not just leaders, to have new capabilities and new ways of thinking about how they show up to work and how they make decisions. And for us, that's about moving from individualistic expressions of how you work and how you maximize profit for your own benefit as a company into a more human-centric expression of how you work with others and how you maximize not just shareholder value, but like stakeholder value, so thinking about the wider system. In today's episode, Brian and I are in conversation with Andy Thornton, who is the Head of Regenerative Design at the Royal Society of Arts, Commerce and Manufacturing, the RSA. This is another wide-ranging conversation, one which covers conversations about Kate Roweth's donut economics, how we break the thinking that is paralyzing us from taking the actions that are necessary for us to move society forward, that the role of external forces and the edges of systems in creating the conditions for innovation and change, the role of bravery in leadership and leaders' roles in creating the conditions for that courage in others. And being honest about the fact that change and transformation are actually constant states for most organisations. We cover an element of that conversation about design and, and, and systems thinking and those skill sets and their, their role within business, but also a challenge to to, to let go of some of the attachment to human-centered design and a challenge to the fact that uh, designers being asked to talk more business means that they're actually not providing the role that they should be within a healthy collaborative system to actually challenge and keep business on track for its commitments to both shareholders and stakeholders as well the ethics behind design there's so much in this conversation and actually in reality we're probably going to be inviting andy back to have another conversation focusing a little bit more on regenerative business as a model itself we're going to dive in uh, brian and i were having a bit of a conversation andy then joined us you'll hear that get started and i hope you get loads out of this we certainly did and it's a big part of shifting some of our thinking about where we're going with our research on leadership in liminal spaces. Let's dive in. So anyway, Latour was saying that, that yeah. all, all, des- all design is redesign mm-hmm. and great designers recognize that and they recognize that what they're doing is they're redesigning. So it's it gets back to that platonic ideal of the the thing and then Mm -hmm. stages from the thing second degree third degree order from the thing yeah designers are designing from needs from requirements right so they are designing from something that already exists yeah i don't know so it's fascinating 
Hello. Andy. Andy, meet. Oh, <laughs> because we're not putting this out on video, people are not going to be able to see that Brian turns up to everything online. It, when it asks him what his name is as Oscar the Grouch. So Andy is currently seeing a video of Brian saying Oscar the Grouch. And 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 Brian's ring light, just to describe for people, is reflecting in a picture behind him. Um, it's thing. like a halo that is slightly shifted to the left and fallen down. I, I, this, it's just an observation, not a judgment. Uh, but uh, Andy, meet... Brian, Oscar, Brian. <laughs> Brian, meet Andy. Yeah, nice to meet you, Brian. <laughs> nice to meet you too, Andy. Fallen, the fallen angel, I suppose we could call it, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to feel like this might be, Brian and I might be Good Omens Series 3 or something here, but just my current my, my current watch on Brian. Andy, thanks very much for joining us. I'm um, really here. excited about, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Brian and I both are. And a little scared. <laughs> yeah, a little bit nervous about just like the edges of where this conversation could go, and uh, yeah, hopefully I, nervous in a good way, like an exciting yeah. kind of nervous because yeah, yeah, completely. We definitely and, wouldn't and, want and it edges to be, yeah. of the conversation is is a really funny metaphorical point, <laughs> given things we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, obviously, Andy and I had a bit of a chat before we decided to come in on this uh, on this podcast i'm a fellow at the rsa and andy you your role at the rsa is head of to, regenerative design yeah head yeah. of regenerative design and yep. we were discussing at one of the fellows festivals this whole theme of exploration and um brian as i shared with you it was just timely for the conversations we've had about the kind of pivot that we need the kind of reset we needed to do for this yeah, we've we've talked about it's it's funny. We started we started in that very defined safe space at the core of of our thinking. So things that <laughs> we started with what we knew, what we'd been through, <laughs> and we had even outlined what a book could look like based on that, which of course is now in the shredder as it were. And I think what we've done is we've tried to with each episode and with each conversation, we've tried to unshackle our thinking to a degree or peel back layers of the onion or maybe get, try and get to the outer layers of the onion. I think we've started at the core. <laughs> We're trying to work our way out of the, the onion. Um, so the, the theme of this exploration that the RSA is doing under its mission of Design for Life about regenerative business really struck a chord with Brian and I, even though we know that we haven't deep dived into it in the way that you have. Would you mind just for those listening, just perhaps explaining a bit about the RSA's most recent articulation of its mission, Design for Life, and then what regenerative business is, how that fits into the RSA's mission, and, and an overview of what that is before we deep dive into some of the really interesting areas that has gone into? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there, right, as well. You know, we're, we're going straight into the word regeneration, and so there's probably a little bit of rewind we want to do with that at some point yeah. as well just to yeah. clarify yeah. but yeah like the and i'm relatively new to the rsa so i think that's useful context so i was actually drawn to the rsa because of the new mission because of design for life design for life is all about how can we make people place and planet thrive and allow people to reach their full potential and that's a mission that's been i think probably bubbling under for a few years from what i can gather but 
has come to sharp focus with Andy Haldane, the new CEO, joining probably somewhere between like a year and a half ago, something like that. There was already a lot of really interesting work going on to explore what is regeneration and what is what does that mean? What is that topic? What, how do we unpack that? There was a regenerative futures piece of work happening. And you could say with the Design for Life mission, it's actually elevated regeneration as a topic to that sort of top level overarching mission of the organization whereas before it was very much like one strand of inquiry one thing that we were thinking about and now it umbrellas a lot of the the wider mission so for me it's like a really exciting mission because my background is probably a bit closer to both of you actually to some degree not necessarily directly involved in transformation pieces but my background's in digital it's definitely very design design studio, design consultancy land, started off in more sort of user experience and products and service design, human-centered design. And I started to lean much more towards how do you embed design as a mindset and a culture within organizations Mm -hmm. because, and that was always quite covert as well, I should say. It was never like an explicit invitation. It was much more of that. It's very hard to do some of these things that you're trying to do within organizations unless you have this design mindset and this ability to allow space for things to emerge and all the creating space for ideas and working in really egalitarian ways here to here. So there's a whole heap of stuff that like we're diverging a little bit from the initial question, but I think it's useful to see it as like yeah, yeah, definitely. a lead into why I started off in design. I'm still fascinated by design. And I almost think some of the principles that are captured through like thinking about regenerative design are definitely like the next horizon of design. And then just to come back to your original second half of your question, Martin, so what, where does business play a role in our Design for Life mission? We've got a one particular intervention that's called Regenerative Capabilities Coalition. Again, lots of like words that we need to unpack a little bit there, but we're basically asking the question, what does business has a massive role to play in society for us to shift towards a new paradigm and a new model and a new way of thinking about how the world can be? And at the moment, it's probably a little bit stuck. You could just say there's a paralysis in the business landscape around exactly how it does that. Yes, regulation is coming on that's helping shift the dial a little bit. You've got employee appetites changing around who they want to work for, They don't just want to work for any old company. They want to work for a purposeful business or a business meeting certain social or environmental positive outcomes. You've got customers feeling the same way. They're starting to only want to buy from organizations that have that meaningful remit. And then you've got these other tensions of like, how do you actually decarbonize supply chains and how do you bring that into like company-wide strategy? There's a whole complexity piece there. So that's just about partnerships within your, you've got to see your business as part of a bigger system. And that, that scope one, two, three type stuff inevitably leads you to have to ask those questions about your, your place in the system. And then invest investors. And what I mean by that, I guess, is we've got boardrooms who classically think about short-term growth and profit. And we are stereotyping yeah. here. Not all boardrooms think like that, but some yeah. of them do. And there's investor pressure now in both ways but both to see a return on investment quickly but also an exposure to risk within that business right so within the landscape of climate risks 
where am I seeing my long-term returns in this organization? So there's this whole, you could just say there's this massive, I think you guys like the phrase Gordian knot, so let's just throw that one in there. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of knots there, right, in a way. Yeah. How do we unpick that? And we see that one way to unpick that, amongst many other tactics that we need to throw in, is we need to enable people within those businesses, not just sustainability teams, not just leaders, to have new capabilities and new ways of thinking about how they show up to work and how they make decisions. And for us, that's about moving from individualistic expressions of how you work and how you maximize profit for your own benefit as a company into a more human-centric expression of how you work with others and how you maximize not just shareholder value, but like stakeholder value. So thinking about the wider system, your employees, your customers, and ultimately getting to the point where you have to think about a life-centric expression of capabilities. And that's being highly conscious of your social impact, your environmental impact, even in these like roles that feel removed from the coalface of those decisions within the organization. We're suggesting that through our intervention, through enabling workforces and people within organizations to build a new set of skills and a new set of capabilities, they can actually influence and nudge the needle on how businesses make decisions. Micro decisions that accumulate and magnify into significantly different outcomes. So that's in a nutshell, there's a lot more to break down there, but yeah. And and can I ask, is this, so you you talked a lot about business and thinking about the environment or the ecosystem as it exists within businesses. But of course, businesses exist within cultures and political systems and geopolitical boundaries and et cetera, et cetera. And one of the examples I really didn't want to even go near, but that came to mind, both doing some reading this week and hearing you talk now, was things like the common systems and thinking that people, that just people on the ground have come to accept over time as being fact. So we're living in a world now where we talk about fake news and we talk about the validity behind statements that people make and and numbers and things like that. Boris is 350 million a year or a week back to the NHS number comes to mind. But the thing is, we live in a society where people have come to accept that that when somebody of some authority or some company of some authority states something, that there's some degree of validity behind that thing they've stated, and therefore there's a degree of acceptance of that thing, whether it's true or not. And most people then don't do the hard work to be, dig into that to decide whether for themselves whether it's true or not. We have these systems within systems, right? And we, while it seems like we could focus on convincing or finding organizations to work in this way and to think in this way, which takes a lot of rethinking about how they currently work and also the systems in which they reside. So it's not just within the organization, but it's moving out to their shareholders. It's moving out to their customers, to the society they sit in, to their competition who will take advantage of the fact that they've taken a left-hand turn somewhere and will want to be quick to step in to fill the void, right? And there, so there's fear in that as well. When we talk about the complexity of this, it, it feels like one of these things where you pull a thread and then you start unraveling lots of things. So it, it must be trying to step back to what you're doing at the RSA and trying to step back to some of the work that you're thinking about how do you define where you start and who you start with? And, and 
Yeah. Yeah. Loads of loads of things in there, Brian, like you say, like it's I think it's hard to unpick because we are talking about like paradigm shift. If we just go to like systems thinking, which I know, you know, you've referenced in your work and some of the other podcasts. Donella Meadows leverage points, I think, is a useful place to think about it. So she talks, I don't know how familiar everyone is with that, but she talks about places to intervene in a system to have the maximum effect. And you've got things on the lower end of the spectrum, which are like parameters. So some of the language she uses is a little bit abstract, but she took like incentives, taxes, things like that. You could nudge those things and they might make a change. And then in the middle of this scale of around 12 different things, you've got things more like feedback loops. So you can create positive feedback loops, you can create negative feedback loops, and these things have an effect. And then when you get in towards the top of the scale of influence, you're into how do you, the rules and the goals of the system, like how do you change the rules, the goals, the sort of system itself. And then you get into the mindset of the system, and then you get the ability to see the paradigm itself and almost think outside of the paradigm um, as the top leverage point that you could possibly get to. But clearly, so what we're talking about here is we're acknowledging the fact that when it comes to any uh, future vision of a world that is has a net positive effect on the environment, the social uh, sphere and the environmental sphere, we're probably significant factors away in terms of the way our whole civilization is oriented today, right? We have the notion of for-profit business and the clue is in the question <laughs> to some degree. Like it's for-profit, it's not for social good, it's not for environmental good. So it's very difficult. I, I don't think there's a perfect answer to be honest, Brian, about like, how do we know where to intervene? I think probably, you know, historically, as an organization that's existed for 270 years or so, the, the RSA sort of has this interesting mix of you need to bring insight and, and some sort of research to the table about what's happening in the world. You need to then have good connections with influencers so that how can you change policy? How can you start to get people to see some of what's happening. And then I think, and probably this is a more recent trend, but it's interesting that this is like the way the world is. You also need to do some experiments. There's this notion that you can't just be a think tank these days. You have to be a do tank. Think tank has become a bit of a dirty word, I suspect, within the think tank industry. So you've got to do experiments. You've got to uh, prototype. You've got to, you've got to play around. But yeah, we are, but we, we're talking like massive system shifting stuff. What is reassuring is there are signals out there that like these concepts are being taken seriously, but there's a nervousness about stepping into that uncertainty. And maybe this is where you talk about the business landscape is even when you're doing relatively small scale transformation, like transformation with a lowercase t, people want certainty at the end of that. They want to know roughly where they're going to be in X amount of time and what the benefits are going to be. And I think with all of this stuff, it's much more actually the only way we're going to get to this future is if we all take one step forward into uncertainty and we use things like design thinking and design methods to actually help us navigate through that uncertainty because it's by the doing that we're going to get to the outcome. Does that make sense? There was pointed, I think Brian and I have both, um, I won't say like deeply familiar, but aware of Kate Roweth's work on donut economics. And without going into the, the detail of that model, you pointed me towards, um, and I've shared um, online before we were, uh, came to this session, her interview with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart on the Rest is Politics Leadership podcast. A couple of things I thought were interesting about that, because she was challenged by them 
as to how the political system could be any different. And if anybody listens along to that, you'll hear Alistair Campbell going, there's no way that this is going to change en masse with everybody unless it's a dictatorship or he teeters on, <laughs> oh my God, do we need a dictatorship? And you can hear Alistair Campbell panicking at that, uh, even saying it out loud. But Kate talked about citizens' assemblies as a kind of almost like a grassroots movement and the the fact that there were more and more local councils or smaller system units like towns and cities that that were doing things. And I, I remember distinctly that during COVID, there was one of the city councils that reached out and Lloyds Banking Group and RSA, we tried to do an exploration to try and see whether or not we could do something about building back better. And although that itself hit its limits because COVID was such a big impact, the council couldn't actually focus on what we wanted to do right there then because it was such a crisis. I think that's really interesting that there are routes through, but the idea that we would all take one step together at the same time, I, I find challenging because of what you get back to human nature. Because what you're then asking is a bunch of humans to take a, some, to do something that is, I don't, I'm not sure we're wired for the same, all of us the same. Fortunately, we're not all the same. So we've got these people who are wired to take those jumps and some who aren't. Do, do you think there's a challenge there? That idea of we all need to take one step forward or is it just that we don't make the step smaller? I know there's definitely a challenge there, Martin, like without a doubt. Like I think that's what we're seeing is mm-hmm. this we've been ingrained, I think, to all. And, and maybe let's look at it from the business perspective, because I think it's easier in other parts of society to see people taking steps forward and being bolder and braver. But I don't necessarily think unless you're like a new startup or a new organization that can build your own place in society from scratch you can embed like these deeply purposeful values and these sort of outcomes you're trying to achieve right from the start i think it's really hard for these incumbent monoliths the bigger companies that have been around for quite a while to see what the benefit is of shifting into a a new yeah a new mode of value creation so profit and loss and again like it's a useful sort of way of thinking about this we've had organizations have been trained in profit and loss for what 100 years maybe more how many years of training have we had with social impact and then environmental impact like environmental Mm -hmm. impact has only really surfaced in any serious way within business in 20 years so there is no like muscle memory there for for us to start be thinking about Mm -hmm. organizations in different ways but it's without a doubt very hard to get everyone to step forward at the same time at the same pace the other option is you just systems change just suggest that a lot of innovation comes from the margins anyway. It will just come through the niche. It won't come from the incumbent mainstream. And hopefully at some point that the idea is that reaches a tipping point where everyone realizes, oh yeah, like these ideas are worth accommodating and we need to shift. I think they're probably just like unanswerable questions about whether that's a way that we can shift into a new reality like within the world or whether we do need to have this like massive, actually all incumbent, Legacy mindsets do need to have a bigger transformation moment where we all accept that the old model doesn't work and we're not mm-hmm. back to your original point around someone's going to step in and into the space that you've left behind is a competitive mm-hmm. space. So how do you reduce that level of risk? And I think one way to reduce that level of risk is to try to get everyone to have this mindset shift 
and an understanding that maybe the easiest way to do this is to do it all together. But mm -hmm. that's no mean feat, right? We're talking about a huge challenge to do that. Yeah, the issue though is that is that <laughs> how do we get people to do that? How do we get people to do that willingly without an external force acting on us, forcing us in that direction? So for instance, the pandemic, the pandemic was, was an external force that intruded on our existing systems, right? And it wasn't really, it wasn't really an external force. These things have existed, you know, these things exist on the planet and have existed for a long time. It's just that we got comfortable in our existing systems and then this other system intruded and we, it has changed to a degree, some behaviors, but not everybody's behaviors. Some people have defaulted back to pre-pandemic ways of thinking. Some people have used it as a springboard to say, actually, this is an opportunity for change. Let's use it. So the collision, I think, of the pandemic and our existing systems, those edges, I think, and that kind of liminal space that people were in as things were were shifting and transitioning caused people to rethink how they wanted to live their lives. Then post-pandemic, we end up with arguments over remote versus hybrid versus in office in terms of organizations, right? We were having those discussions before, but now they have more weight and emphasis because of what we've been through. So there's more conversation about them. Other things have come out of that that I feel like I've noticed this increase or influx of thinking around wellness, being mental health. It feels like that's come out of that. That's gotten a real boost from that period of time. So I think the collision of systems sometimes causes things to form something beyond those two systems. So I think that maybe gets into that, that sense of emergence, right? You've got these pre-existing core systems that come together and the, the collision of those two things forms a bigger system. It forms something that the, the individual parts of that system couldn't really quite do, but now the whole is driving something, new behaviors, new ways of thinking. New way we were talking about that before, Brian, weren't we? We were saying that, I think you were articulating that if you think about a number of systems that exist, then they have this kind of controlling structure, potentially. That's a bit antithetic to the idea of systems because it's more emergent, but there are these organizations or ways and things that are happening in the world. And they've got these kind of control mechanisms within them. And I, I feel like what those, some of those control mechanisms have allowed for is for certain things to be subdued. And then um, what we're now seeing is this in that collision of these edges, this emergence of stuff that's always been important, but, but hasn't had the airtime, if you like, and there's a whole bunch of things that have come together at the same time uh, uh, as COVID in society, as well as, uh, as as well as within business. So that's not gone. That can't go back in the box, which is really great. So that is, I think, what can't go back in the box is is well being. What can't go back in the box is is just the deep rooted history of most of business and society in in slavery. And the reparations that are, and the, the changes that are needed as a result of that, the, this ability to understand that now, the inequalities that exist, all of those things can't go back in the box now. We can, I think, we can only move forward. It will be, it might be two steps, one step, one step, two step, back and forth, but we, the direction can only be forward. So I think that also becomes interesting. Yeah, and I think also, Brian, back to your original point, which is there are these sort of external forces that happen that make these 
bigger shifts, COVID being like our most recent example that for everyone was like really shocking. But we saw this emergence of new way. The things that were actually important to us emerged out. Yes. Out of that space because you were suddenly left, yeah, like in, in a different mode of existence. But I think more of those collisions are going to keep happening, right? So if we just take a step back from the detail, we're going to say, this is coming thick and fast. Like the word poly crisis isn't relevant for no reason. People are seeing within the business landscape a sort of reeling from one crisis to the next. And at the moment, we're just on the back foot. We're just like reacting to these crises. And yeah, if you've got some sort of futures and foresight function within your business, you're probably trying to predict the next crisis and somehow build the wall, put the walls up to protect your business from that. It's the wrong mindset though. So what we need to be thinking about is these things are going to keep coming. Like the next 30 years is not going to be a fun time for the climate, irrespective of where we go from now with the climate. Like even if we, you know, genuinely start to meet some of these uh, pledges that are being put forward, the next 30 years is still going to be tough because there's a period of transformation within wider society, within business. But yeah, like how do we actually proactively move towards a future that we want rather than react to these things? These things are are going to keep coming at us, keep sort of rolling at us. And I think there's an opportunity for especially businesses to be much more proactive about seeing the fact that they're that you're on diminished returns within the current system and a system and i think there's also just something worth talking about within systems i think we see them as these kind of big things that we're a small actor within and we often i think lean into this Mm -hmm. notion that it's government there's some overpowering force that shapes this system and we're just pawns within the system thing that's the general stereotype of sort of system and i think we need to see ourselves as more actually systems are like recreated daily based on patterns of behavior that we do they're not things that are just set in stone we all yeah. turn up and, and reinforce the, the system mm-hmm. and so there are ways that there's a lot more agency within systems i think that we sometimes think and systems like are nested at different layers we have these stereotypes of the education system or whatever it is but yeah. you've also got you are a system yourself i just think thinking about systems in a different way is also like helpful is that part of what you're doing with the regenerative business um, um inquiry for the rsa is that a, a part of it in that there's a narrative that supports certain actors and players within systems that it can't be changed that it is uh, under control that some other people have the influence that and that narrative supports those who benefit unequally in the system right now but the more that we ex- but we don't have to accept that mm. as individuals so what i was hearing right back at the top of this was that there are a number of kind of experiments and interventions and education pieces that we're doing with regenerative business to try and spread that out a little bit more. I'm just, I guess my question yeah. is, given that we are in these transitional states and given that this is, and this is a podcast about liminal leadership, when you're operating within that liminal space, and I think we're in a long, there are short and long periods of liminal spaces. I think we're in a long liminal space right now. Maybe, such that many people can't see it. What does it take to lead and to lead change in that w- mm. with purpose? Generative business as a purpose, as a theme. What are you noticing that it takes to lead and make change when you're in this kind of liminal space? Mm-hmm. I think it is some of the stuff we we did touch on before as well, Martin. So like we, 
this notion of bravery. So we talked about this idea that organizations need to step forward together into uncertainty. So there's going to have to be these qualities of bravery and courage. And actually, that's we have a framework we call the 10 Cs, which is these are the capabilities we need for a 21st century future fit workforce. One of them is courage. <laughs> so we definitely need people to be courageous leaders. You don't know where you're going. You have to step into that uncertainty. And to be honest, I think that's the biggest one more than anything within that leadership level, because, again, we are looking within this intervention to say, yes, systems are complex, and, le- and yes, people within more pa- with more power within the existing system can have more sway over how to change it, but everyone does have a role to play. And if we enable people, everyone within a workforce, to have a systemic way of thinking, so this is about empowering people to see systems and to think in systems, and some roles will be more conducive to that than others, but everyone should be trained and skilled in systems thinking in a way. This isn't just like the preserve of a certain type of mindset or a certain type of role. Everyone needs to have those sort of skills. You can make changes. So the good practical one is, and usually these are put up as binaries, right? We're we're only going to change the world if if government embraces things and all the rules change. It's like to some degree. And then there's usually this argument on the counter, like whenever people are talked about individual actions and footprints, that's in a way a perversion to try to take the attention away from the system. Oh, no, it's your individual responsibility. I actually think that there isn't a binary there. There is like a a spectrum of decisions. Like how many of us are vegetarians, for instance, like especially in the West, the reason why we're driving deforestation and a lot of these things is because of the beef industry. That has such a massive impact. And you can't, like if enough people did go vegetarian, that would have a sizable effect on the system because there's no demand for beef anymore. So again, one little example, and we've strayed away from the business case. But I think the idea of, yes, it involves both. And, and I think what leadership need to do um, is empower empower people to, to think differently. And I think that step of bravery into the unknown is important as well. And then you get into that sort of design space to some degree. I think that's where design is really powerful because um, mm-hmm. it embraces that element of uh, uncertainty, not knowing, creating space for things to emerge which can be greater than some of the parts and like bringing the people with different skills together in that sort of uncertain liminal space i think there's something really oh go ahead brian yeah no i was just i was curious on on that point do you think we're do you think we're creating leaders do you think leaders are emerging uh, and naturally and leading those companies or do you think we're looking in the wrong places for leadership do you think we're because if, if you think about if you think about leadership coming up through the core of a business in a traditional business, do you think they've been exposed enough? So when, when you talk about things like edge effect abundance, people who've worked maybe at the margins and worked between these clashing at the edges of these clashing systems and cultures, that probably creates interesting leaders. Maybe people who are who think out of the box. They're they're not they're not quite. They're not quite what you would expect in a leader. And I think about leaders who who maybe go into organizations that are really foundering. They're, they've had a, they've, something's happened and the, the organization is, is going through great difficulty. And you bring in, people talk about bringing in a change leader, right? Somebody who's used to working in that space, that kind of really tricky, undefined space to try and lead people through. Do you think we need more of those leaders as opposed to, 
what we think of as steady state leaders. So the business is running. Let's just keep it running. <clears throat> we're happy with it the way it's running because we're living in a time where things need to change. And so do we need a lot more, do we need a lot more change leaders and do they need to come from different places and what do they look like? Mm. It's a really good question, Brian. I think I'd be definitely interested in hearing your perspectives on it within the organizations you've worked within. I, I, for me, it's this idea that even when we frame things as like transformation, like it's quite interesting, right? It's what's happening there within organizations and project. It's, I guess we're drawing attention to the fact that a whole bunch of things are going to get changed and, and messed up and things aren't going to be how they were before. But actually change is always happening. No organization stays in any sort of steady state permanently. And actually, I guess even if you look at, isn't there some evidence that shows think, the amount of companies that exist for the lifespan of businesses is shortening, basically. So this idea of the companies that we had 100 years ago, like Ford and people like that, like they're, they're a rare breed these days. So what's happening in the business landscape? There's some degree of like permanent innovation required and, and, and this ability to adapt to the times. And I think, like you say, as we see the times change and becoming more chaotic and more uncertain, you could just say, actually, we should probably stop calling these initiatives transformation. We should just embrace the fact that like liminality is a permanent state in a way. And then, yeah, like what are the qualities? I'm interested in what, what we see as the qualities of leadership required from that. Because you could say, yeah, a traditional business probably has a certain uh, idea of a sort of Promethean style leader. Oh, that's a good word to use. It's like someone who has a lot of individual power and charisma and, and guides people through and, and yeah, valuable. But it, is it actually the, the right set of skills that can navigate all of these sort of like weird, uncertain mm. spaces? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've these comments that I'm going to make now, I think are based on certainly based on anecdote, not um, rigorous survey study analysis but um i can think of a couple of examples of people who've um risen to leadership positions in large complex organizations who um actually have come from the roots of that organization <clears throat> and have maybe been with it 15 20 25 years who when they get to that higher position of leadership whether it's ceo We've had a recent example of Alison Rose is one of one of the people I'm thinking about, who is was her whole career in in that West, and made a significant difference as a CEO. Current situation aside, without getting into that, there have been others who I've seen come into transformation executive positions, and made a difference in how they're leading. There was a common factor with all of them, which was that they were not of the stereotype of the system. They were not middle-aged white men, right? They were men and women, but they were not middle-aged white men. And there's something in that, I think, that, that when they got to that position, they were bold and courageous enough to find to take a different approach. Mm. And there's another thing I've observed, just going back to like design, and this is actually going back to customer centricity. You hear a lot about, People saying, I don't think that company there is cares about customers. And I remember the, the we think about Royal Bank of Scotland, who I worked with for a while. I remember people being so critical of that because of the actions of some leadership in 2008, 2009. Every single person I met below executive level, I'm not saying the executives weren't, but people on the ground, they all cared deeply about customers. 
because their job was facing off to and working with and talking to customers. And that's the bit they enjoyed about their job. So when you get a leader that does come to the top and does care about doing something differently, they have this immense ability to then suddenly unlock a whole bunch of stuff that people want to do in any case. So I think there's great hope in that. But I do think we need Brian's point, bringing it back to your point, Brian. We need to look for we need to look for people who are who who bring with them different experience that means that they will take on that challenge. Because I, I also think there is a navigable route to um regenerative business when you go back and look at the purpose of some of these large complex organizations they were originally created for more than mm. just yeah. profit and i think um, it does require it, that but it, it's going to take some amazing style of leadership to be able to try and do that along with all the competition from the new companies and the new innovation that comes out that will set the scene for that's the bar right so i i see a lot of hope because of Experiments in changing how we govern through citizens' assemblies, for experiments in how new companies are coming out with new standards and things, although they're battling to then scale into a system that doesn't acknowledge that. And then some of these large, complex organisations, if we can just keep those leaders in place and not tear them down too quickly, I, th- I see hope in that. Hmm. Yeah, I, what I worry about is we've just experienced and probably are still experiencing the effects and the impact of COVID and pandemic on society and watching people revert to type <clears throat> tells me that they may have thought about it for a time, but maybe not deeply enough or didn't feel deeply impacted enough to make the kinds of deep level changes in the way they live their lives and the way they see things that would create lasting, long-lasting change. So I guess what I worry about is, is it going to take, is it going to take three more successive COVIDs, each one worse than the next? Is it going to take, in terms of climate, is it going to take not one, but several major, really major climate impacts to steer us in that direction? And then where's the tipping point? Yeah. (laughs) It's a really... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a really dangerous cycle to get into, right? Like you say, I think so this maybe this is another quality of those leaders that we need, right? Which is this sort of sense of possibility. Like for for me, what was interesting about the pandemic, beside the horrendous impact on the loss of human life and in a way, in some governments, the lack of care that was taken to protect lives, that those trade-off again, because the system was broken, right? Like the trade-off is between protecting human life or keeping the economy going. And that's a terrible trade-off to have. But you, you saw things emerge out of that. And we saw possibilities emerge about new ways of doing things. And to your point, Brian, I totally agree. Then we've seen that as a retreat since then. It feels, oh, there's like actually lots of things happening. We had Black Lives Matter like flourishing in, in a more sort of this whole questions about the role of race in society. And look, even the impacts of COVID just showed us the hard data of how that affects people. Like I say, different modes of working, different ways of thinking about care. There's a whole heap of new ideas and new possibilities that emerged that do need to be nurtured and nourished. But they show you that those possibilities exist and they're just hidden from view. Like our system makes us think that there's no possibilities available. And it's very easy to get this like closing doom loop vibe about this. Oh my God, where are we heading before this changes? So we really need people, actually leaders, 
and like anyone to some degree, to see possibilities. It doesn't mean being like hopelessly optimistic, like as in ridiculous, it can't be fantasy, but there's so much possibility within the world and our system. I don't, I don't want to go to capitalism, but we've, I'm just going to invoke it anyway. Capitalism is, a, is an invention of our own creation. We can invent other things. I don't know if either of you have read The Dawn of Everything by Wengro and I'm trying to think who else it was, Graeber, David. Yeah, it's fascinating. No, I haven't. They, they just talk about this idea that we have this notion that we went from hunter-gatherer societies and then the agricultural revolution came and made us settle down and that created hierarchies and walls. And we have that narrative that's so embedded within us of how civilization has migrated towards the state it is today. And the reality is when they dig into it, like actually it's not like that at all. There was no moment of agricultural revolution. There was this whole transitionary period where actually here we go, liminal, there was a liminal space happening where people were existing between different types of social formations. So they were like hunter-gatherers for a while, they were agriculture, they were temporary sort of farmers, but they weren't they there wasn't like this significant shift where everyone was on like a single path to something else. So just to, just as a recap, like that means like possibilities are there, and some of our narratives that we believe to be true aren't always true, and we need to lean into some of that a bit more. Yeah, so, <laughs> gosh, there is just so much. <laughs> yeah, what's um, useful to tie in is this: is there something that we can tie back into some of your other comments? Because like you said, I think the the notion here is regeneration is just such a big topic, right? You're talking about mm-hmm. like paradigm level change, and I think straight away you're just getting into these like hard edges of it's really hard to go there and i am conscious i think we talked about this a little bit martin before we yeah. up. it's like we could go in lots of directions and maybe there is some things we could ground in yeah. one thing think- that could be useful mm-hmm. like i just as a I, I saw i don't know if it's useful to talk about design generally but i thought i saw design evolve over the last 20 years from something that was initially about the interface and we saw the first emergence of how design was used and, and manifested within business as this kind of usability testing and getting stakeholders to see the value of, oh, yeah, when you actually listen to customers, you get some useful insights from it. And it, then it migrated into a field for me that it was much more around um, designers' empathy. So yeah. it became a bit more process-driven it was mm-hmm. much more about scaling into teams and into existing like technology processes. And that was about like really like deeper connection to customers and that sort of thing. And then I think the sort of paradigm we're in with design within business at the moment is it's more like designer's strategy. So design is a way of thinking. And how do you bring design skills to the boardroom to some degree? I think some of that narrative has been probably like over overplayed i think it's been overplayed in that it's in that it's there's still a sense of the reason the narrative like that is coming out of design is to whether consciously or subconsciously protect design in the roles whereas brian we were touching on this beforehand and before andy joined the the fact that the core approach and mindset of a designer if you take it all back to root and what if you go to design school or um, college or art school is one about it, it, it is one about like problem problem solving right yes with a human centered aspect to that but to the art of 
making decisions on purpose, right? And that actually design, capital D as a discipline and craft, has been deployed to initially design things and now design digital products and services. But from the moment that you had to, from the moment of change from designing a chair, which if you go to your industrial design course, you'll design a lot of chairs, to try and bring form to function and the function of that digital product and services, it actually is embedded within, the, the bringing that to life is embedded within the rest of the organization. And so actually at that point in time, it, what became re- much more obvious is that it is all of these people and, and capabilities within a business that bring a product and service to life. And therefore, it's all of their decisions that bring a product and service to life and make it work. And therefore, they're all designing, right? Feels like it's impinging on your role as capital D designer, when in fact, I believe they just have to let go of that. Um, and what I was hearing earlier, just to bring it back and, out and literally take it away, take this conversation away from designers, capital D, you were saying right back at the beginning, this is something about educating more and um, we know it as systems thinking and critical thinking, but breaking those things down into stuff that people and teams within businesses and groups of people within organizations can pick up on. And the 10 C's from the RSA, I think is actually really interesting to be able to talk about this. Well, I won't go through all of them right now, but if we think about what you said about courage and potentially critical thinking, for example, it's been articulated as for an individual, critical thinking is about criticism right? But at a kind of human level, it's about reasoning. And then at a kind of life-centric or society systems level, it's about reflexivity. And if you took courage, then it was determination as an individual, dedication as a bunch of humans. And at a systems level and society level, there may be some sacrifice. So there's a role for everybody to play. And I think that's, you know, the design tools, mindsets, I 100% believe need to be shared, but I actually think it is wider. I think it's what you've been saying in regenerative business. It's the systems and critical thinking. And when people are still going, oh yeah, that's a bit like my service design stuff. And shut up. No, it just let it be. It's a bunch of skills and mindsets. That if we all pick up on, then we'll see those emergences and those at the edges, we'll see more things change. Brian, you had a great thing about like your writing and how that shifted your thinking about design. Yeah, I was talking to Martin earlier. During the pandemic, I decided to finally put my MFA in creative writing to use and wrote my first novel. But as I approached doing that, I started from the position of being a designer. And as I moved across into being a writer, um, what I realized was I was utilizing a lot of tools that I had come to see as design tools, method that I'd come to see as design method. And as I crossed the barrier into writing... I utilized many of those same tools, but now they became writing tools. Somewhere in the middle, they became agnostic and they became just tools for navigating and helping think and provide structure and that sort of thing, which meant the tools were always agnostic. They were never really design tools or writing tools. They were just ways of doing things, ways of thinking about things, ways of ordering and structuring things. And it's only as you step back and think about those liminal spaces. So as you do approach edges between one thing and another, and you start to cross that boundary, that you realize many of the things that you do aren't endemic or specific to 
a, a discipline or a capability. And I think with designers, I think particularly digital designers in inside organizations, there's been a lot of fight to keep to keep the tools and the method and thinking within the construct of design, because design has been in some ways so disintermediated over a period of time inside organizations that designers start to feel like they lose identity in that space. They don't know who they are anymore, and they don't know that other people understand who they are or what they provide or what they do. And I've become a a real proponent for utilizing those underlying skills in a very agnostic way across businesses. So it's not just about designing products and services as they come from the product roadmap down through the pipeline, down through the delivery pipeline, but also about reaching out horizontally, laterally across the organization and utilizing those skills to help other teams, to support other teams. You can run workshops for HR as they're thinking about new HR systems. You can work with compliance to think about new ways to to deliver compliance across the organization, regulatory, all these different areas of the of the business. You'll benefit from the skills yeah. and tools and method. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely I def- I totally agree with that. So you could say there's a craft side to design. And I guess we're talking yeah. about design as the noun and then there's the mindset side of design as the verb and i I think i I tend to agree that the things that we sometimes talk about as design now actually i don't know even sure i would say that they originate in design i think sometimes like we over stereotype what design is so i feel like yes what gets referred to now as design is and i've heard this even in some of your other podcast episodes is this idea of like experimentation prototyping learning by doing and actually when you take a step back from that and just challenge your assumptions for a second like that is not the exclusively the domain of design engineers have been talking about that for a long time we have agile and we have like concepts like lean those didn't even really emerge from a design field it emerged elsewhere i think there's a real risk that we've just created these memes of what design is within an organization and it's not actually the essence of what is design and interestingly i have a stance on this which is i think the thing that as design grew and professionalized and became commoditized and industrialized within organizations, so you had bigger teams doing more design work, and yes, some of it was craft. But I think we actually, and, and, and it became more process-driven, how do you integrate design within an organization to produce results? It actually lost some of its essence of what did make it different. And I don't think what made it different was the ability to prototype and iterate and explore i think that was a general trend happening within the these sort of industries and professions as a whole and i would give more credit to agile than anything else that made that happen i actually think design space was the emergence of creative thought and ideas there was this ideation moment that you would create this space where you would fuel lots of thought into things that wouldn't normally given be given that space and i actually personally experienced that i think that got collapsed through this industrialization process that actually the space Mm -hmm. within the design process for creativity has become actually quite narrow we talk about experiments and learning by doing and putting stuff into the wild like that's how you validate ideas and i'm not against that but i think actually we're still missing a trick within business that says actually no designs role is to have this moment earlier on which really does open the doors of possibility. And when I just think, trying to bring this back to regenerative design, 
if we're talking about big mindset shifts, big changes, design is underplaying its role at that stage, which is like possibility, uh, like new possibilities and not just test and iterate and that sort of thing. So I don't know if that's like a useful this, this, this is, yeah. yeah, this is why I think design has to show up in organizations where you don't expect it. I think I, I think a lot of organizations have productionized design and moved in that direction over the past 20 years, 20, 25, 30 years. At least that's my experience of it. I started in the 90s and just feels like it's made that move from ideation and creation to production and delivery over over that period of time. But I think design's biggest opportunity is to show up across the organization in places where people haven't traditionally engaged with it or don't expect it to show up. And so when you talk about when you talk about this idea of regenerative business, I think if you start exposing the, the some of the precepts behind design, so opening up thinking, opening up dialogue, opening up collaboration, opening up co-creation. Some of these things, if they start appearing in different spots of the organization, different places in the organization, then you're starting to light fires around the organization and you're creating the opportunity for, it's, no, it's not about design anymore. You're creating the opportunity for people to, to be exposed to different types of thinking, thinking in new ways, having new tools and skills to, to be able to think in different ways. And I think that's the value that yeah. design can bring to the organization. Sure, it can shape your product and your service, right? It can be a part of that process, but it could be so much more than that. If people stopped focusing on the the most important thing is the pinnacle to get a seat at the table, and they started focusing on the disintermediation of product and service from skill and technique and process, they could start applying those things in lots of different ways across the organization. That's an yeah. opportunity for design. 100%. And the... The trick I think there is that is to hold true a couple of things at once. One is that what you might need to do is show up as the people that can help with the outcome that somebody's looking for. Um, um, somebody once said to me that they happened to work inside a large consultancy and had a design team that needed to be deployed in other work, and that person would never go around and say, "I, you know, I, we should put a UX designer or a visual designer on your project." Because somebody would say, I'm, I've got this project and so we need to really make show the client that we're understanding customers. And so I have somebody who really helps with customer understanding. They just replay the, the language back or we've got a problem communicating to our client what the value of this project is. I have somebody who's really good at communicating complex ideas, visual designer. So he'd just turn up and say, I have one of those and then fit the right person in. I, I also saw... Uh, the the investing in from a design department. So Roger Ahaki at BP put together a, an, an awesome team to work on a 10 to 15 year vision for a city's move to hydrogen. And what that team essentially did was a bunch of visualization and storytelling as the stakeholders were working through. And the result of that, as you say, Andy, opened up the thinking so the all the creativity came out through that facilitation but they didn't design the answer mm -hmm. it wasn't their work but they held that space for people and the stakeholders that came back from that then turned around and said we couldn't have done this without that team that leader roger then he pushed and invested in his team to make to be there and make that difference but they did it in a way that wasn't look at us look what we did we're leading this or you need to put us in charge of xyz the 
that's what I mean by the stepping back from it has to be us or it has mm-hmm. to be about capital D design. And what uh, Brian, I think what you're saying there is turn up, share the skills and the mindsets, demonstrate them, share them, do them in the way that is, that it's a small nudge and change mm. that actually then you turn around and measure your value by were we useful? Yeah. I think, Did we you know, help shift something? Without a doubt. I think maybe this is, again, looking back at the history of design from it started as a craft. It was more about interface. It moved into empathy. It moved into strategy. You could say what's next or what's now. And I think some of what you're hinting at, Martin, is design as a role at that level or design skills, again, like whether we you know, just capital T designers or not, is that facilitation role, is that space holding role more than anything else? I think there is still a role to play for design as a craft, like just to be clear, like absolutely, we've made that word a bit too big and a bit too broad in some ways. We could, it could have, you could use an alternative label there and it would be the same thing. Do we all engineer things or do we all design things? Like it, it needs anchoring a little bit. But the only thing I would say, I think it's useful to think of as designs moved in and it started to understand the language of business and it started to try to have an effect within business and connect more broadly and be much more of a space holder and a less, I think, again, this is possibly a bit controversial, but I think I said it lost its idealism or some of its stubbornness through that process which was did did need to go like the egocentric view of design which is like oh we're the people with all the skills and we'll solve all your problems like is wrong but i think human-centered design ultimately became co-opted i don't think human-centered design is the problem so sometimes i was sat on a sustainability call with a group we have at the rsa and mentioned human-centered design i think someone in the chat said human-centered design is the reason why we're in this mess I I sometimes wonder whether people appreciate what we had before human-centered design, (laughs) which was a bunch of engineers making decisions about what was right for the customer. I think human-centered design was a noble intention, but I don't think it ever fully got implemented within business in in a pure sense. I think we started to hear messages that were, it's good to think of the customer, but the business is more important, as in it does have to you obviously need to get product market fit and you have to see that some of it got so diluted that I think it became a little bit tokenistic. Some of the processes worked, but if we could truly step back and say how many organizations that claim to do human-centered design or have a human-centric process actually do human-centered design, where you are saying like, actually, we don't have product market fit or the consequences of the decisions of this product have a negative impact on the humans in the system. I think usually when those things are trade-offs between launch the product, don't launch the product, organizations are still going launch the product and use behavioral shaping to get customers to want to buy that. And to me, that is a perversion of human-centered design. So I'm going to go with a strong provocation at the end, which is I do think throw the baby out with bathwater on human-centered design. There are aspects, we do Mm -hmm. need to move beyond anthropocentrism, but we also need to get businesses to, I think we need more, we do need more activist designers within organizations that hold Absolutely. organizations to their yeah. ideals and to their ethics. Design, yeah. you cannot divorce design from good or bad criteria. It's inherently no. baked into design. Like you design mm-hmm. something to produce an effect and you have to de- yeah. describe the effect. And if you describe the effect, like we want this to happen, not this to happen, it has an inherent ethical quality baked into the whole thing. So like, 
designers right. really do need to go back to that and make sure that like we have too many designers at the moment designing things because they've been told speak the language of business don't alienate mm-hmm. people actually at some point we do need to have this conversation and say business is not producing societal outcomes that are beneficial not yes. all business so how do you as a designer yeah. play a role within your system to nudge it so mm-hmm. that it does i think that's that is the challenge that i think that anybody in their career from zero to even up to 10 years at the moment in terms of design craft is is facing depending which organization they're working within and i think that the rallying cry is that we're not involved enough in the decisions that mean that determine what we design or what we've been worked on therefore we need that seat at the table type thing but i don't think that logic flow is necessarily deterministic that's the only answer i think there's something really interesting in the uh, if we can have more things out there that are helping us provoke organizations and i'll say organizations as well as businesses to think differently about their the balance of their purpose and what they're doing then that will create conditions in which these skills are more useful to navigate that which will create the spaces in which some of the team who have these skills and mindsets can be put to good use and we'll find that will be across all levels of skills. So if I think about that project that I saw at BP, there, there were senior and there were junior people involved in that, which is a brilliant thing because it gave the juniors an example to see how a very specific craft around visual storytelling, when contextualized inside a project that had a different type of objective that was a kind of citywide environmental contribution on the long-term scale and impact, you know, that their specific craft had value, even if they're not at the leadership level to understand how to deploy that or shape it into that in the first place. Um, But it's this multiple layers of conditions to create, I think. Um, And you need to be really aware if you're inside the design craft, you need to be really aware that just rallying and knocking on the door and going, we should be there is not necessarily the answer. I do think you need to understand business better in order to understand where those moments of influence and leverage points might be. But I think there's other organizations that and other efforts that need to be had to change mindset at executive level as well. And I, I don't think design will be the sole group of people that change that. They can't be. And I, I felt that's why the regenerative business as a as an inquiry by the RSA, I thought was really interesting because it, yes, you have that background of design and understanding, but you're also, the language I'm hearing is that it's about critical thinking. It's about citizenship. It's about creativity, collaboration. We as designers recognize a lot of our mindset and craft in that, but it's not exclusive to us. And I think that, I thought that was really interesting about regenerative business. Yeah. No, not at all. Like you say, I think 10 C's is much more of a framework for everyone to embrace. And it's less around design explicitly. You could say that's around organizational design. So again, we're using design in the loosest sense of the term there. Um, Yeah, and I I agree. It's like finding the roles within the organizations that can prod um, the business in the right directions. And some of that, you can't just speak this isolated language, but we should just be really clear that the language of business to a lot of business is actually quite monosyllabic. It's about growth. It's about GDP. It's profit and loss. And we have to start questioning whether there is a future thrivable 
society on earth that can continue to grow with those with that mindset i think like growth demands it's a crazy demand on earth's resources to grow at the rates that we talk about growing if you grow at two two to three percent of gdp i think you're like doubling resource use within like 25 years or something it or maybe it's 50 years it's it but it's shocking right it, it it has to that that mindset that is embedded within a lot of for profit business does have to be challenged and yeah it, it I don't know I don't almost I don't care who the challenge comes from but yeah. I do think there was a way in with human centered design to start to challenge that narrative and if there are other narratives in there to challenge that then I'd embrace all of them and we need to throw the weight behind all of those ways to challenge the dominant narrative which doesn't. Yeah, like it, it has a limited shelf life. I think that's really interesting. It's the, it's the narrative about regenerative. It's about a society and kind of planetary centric view, understanding that system level there. If you can do that across our understanding of economics, if you can do that across our understanding of design, our understanding of governance, of politics, local, national, then that's the thread um, that can bring people together or open up a space in which different mindsets can be had. So for sure, I think when we say understanding the language of business only so that you can understand what is what about it will need to change mm. and what not what you need to challenge. Andy, as we come to the end of our time together, is there is there something you'd like to sum up about where we're <laughs> at with where you are at with regenerative business as an inquiry with the RSA or what's about to happen next? And then also, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just one one reflection on what you think it's going to take to be a, a leader in these liminal spaces going forward. I know mm. we've covered a bit of it, just maybe just to sum up. Yeah. Great conversation, guys. I know like some of this is like, where do you start? Where do you end? So it's always very difficult to anchor <laughs> down and especially trying to frame it around the context. So liminal leadership within business is an aspect of this. I would definitely say... We all need to become liminal leaders to some degree. So all of those qualities about what it is to embrace uncertainty, discomfort, stepping into the unknown, not knowing the outcomes are going to be like hugely important. If I was going to make a plug for the RSA's work, we are actively seeking business leaders right now who have those qualities and who are brave and want to work with the RSA to explore um, what these new capabilities would be to embed within the workforce. So we're building a coalition at the moment of organizations that want to share their experiences of their experiments that they're doing with other like-minded pioneering organizations, but also the organizations that want to do, take a bit of a skunk works type approach where you set up a little innovation team, uh, hopefully not too isolated from the rest of the business, but that they have the freedom and the space to start to ask some of these bigger questions. What are the things that are really blocking us and holding us back from delivering more purposeful outcomes within the organization are those collaboration related issues are those there could be a whole host of things that are stopping people but we're definitely seeking and on the lookout for a group of organizations who want to do those experiments and yeah it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of boldness but you'd be working alongside others who are also doing that, that bravery excellent i really look forward to continuing to hear more about what's going on with this learning line of inquiry and yeah we've got 
two RSA fellows on the call, so of course we're plugging the RSA, <laughs> uh, but I genuinely um, think it's that concept of um, the word fellowship um, it is about um, a space in which people come together to actually t- to be okay with existing in that complexity, which I think is a really interesting interesting idea. So I'd encourage uh, others just to potentially just pick up and even read some of the outputs and see what that <clears throat> develops in your thinking. Andy, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us and to help us explore a bit more um and this for us every conversation leads to another conversation leads to another conversation and that is the, the point of these i hope that's done the same for our listeners as well um brian i know that we're gonna, probably going to be having many conversations after this now about where we go to next <laughs> yeah yeah and andy we may circle back and have another conversation with you in the future because yeah. there are so many avenues to go down and explore it'd be really great to be able to do that yeah i, think, I, I know, feel we only actually weirdly skim the surface of the regenerative concept mm-hmm. in a way because we were you have to get your head into that zone of what the transformation yeah. is so there is this whole field of some qualities of regenerative specifically regenerative thinking that i think are really exciting and inspiring that yeah like more than happy to dig into deeper like how do we get inspired by living systems for instance like that's a big part of regenerative thinking there are things that we can relearn and reintegrate back into the way that we operate as businesses as individuals from living systems that will be self-sustaining because the evidence is there for hundreds of millions of years that these things flourish um so yeah i tell you what then i think what we do is i think it would be great to have you back on Again, in some weeks' time, or time elapsed for us, that might not be time elapsed on the podcast, given the publishing schedule, but uh, to talk through maybe some specific examples of uh, experiments and provocations that are going on within regenerative business and space. And it'd be good to dive into some of those examples. I think having had this conversation, that will allow us to have a frame within which to, to have that. And perhaps looking at one of those specific areas will take us to those boundaries and those edges that we were talking about. And I'd really like to explore that with you. I think that'd be mm. a great um, other thing to do and perhaps we can invite somebody else into that conversation as well um, and see where we go with that we, let's i think that would be a, a great idea so, andy for now thank you very yeah. much for your time today been really enjoyed this and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch yeah no great to connect and glad to be on the podcast yeah yeah thanks really good to have you thanks for listening to liminal leaders We'd love to continue the conversation with you, our listeners, hear feedback about this episode, thoughts about who we should talk to next, pose questions you'd like us to consider in future conversations, and as always, suggestions for new and interesting cocktails to get us through the long nights ahead. And if you want to learn more about this podcast, its hosts or guests, go to liminalleaders.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.